Russia's grain blackmail failed as Moscow showed it is incapable of blocking the Ukrainian food exports. The next big battle is going to be over Kherson, with Russians preparing to defend the occupied city. Ukraine is still suffering from massive blackouts. Kyiv mayor Klitschko says the city is thinking how to evacuate 3 million people from Kyiv in case of total blackout in winter. You're listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine. Explaining Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. This is our weekly digest covering events in and around Ukraine from October 30th until November 6, 2022. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor of Ukraine World. My co-host is Tetyana Harkova, Ukrainian scholar and journalist who is heading the international department at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. Before we start, let me remind you that you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We devote majority of your donations to help Ukrainian defenders and people affected by this war. Patreon.com slash ukraineworld. So, Tanya, let us discuss this week, and um, we will start from from the topic we actually are have, have been discussing last week, these blackouts. These blackouts across Ukraine, including in Kyiv, we are now uh, sitting in Brovary, our native Kyiv suburb, without electricity. Hopefully our equipment is working on on the batteries, on accumulators, but we are really sitting in half darkness, but continue working. So let us explain to our listeners what it means. Yeah, exactly. It's not only dark, but it's also cold because there is no heating at that very moment. Normally, heating season starts in the fifth, around 15th of October in Ukraine. This uh, Today, we are already on 7th of November and still we don't have heating, so it's quite freezy in our apartment. But yes, we had some electricity in the morning and um, we should explain that the hardest, the most difficult situation in Ukraine is now in Kiev, in the capital and in Kiev region because of the, uh, because of a lot of missiles who arrived in previous weeks into Kiev and Kiev region specifically. This Monday, we were lucky enough because there were no air alerts in the morning and no new missiles arriving here. But as far as we understand, there is a still a huge amount of deficit of this um, electricity in the region. And uh, during all the previous week, we had up to 11 hours of sh- of blackouts during a day. So it looks like uh, you have electricity for four hours. Next four hours, you don't have electricity. Then in com- it comes back and then you don't have this electricity. And this is extremely changing. But the good news it is that um, in other regions of Ukraine, the situation seems to be better. In in uh, in Chernig, if it's like in Kiev, but in somewhere in the west, in Lviv, in uh, in Ivano-Frankivsk, uh, as far as we know, in Nuzhgorod, situation is much better. But yes, indeed, in it influences all the life of people living in Kiev. It influences business shops, any kind of business, any kind of public places are affected. It's much worse than a simply air alert because without electricity you can go you cannot go to a bank, you cannot go to a shop. 
um, you cannot go to uh, to a clinic if the clinic is not uh, having any kind of generator. Some clinics, some big clinics, they do have generators, but not all of them. So it means that you are never sure about your day. You are never sure about what are you going to do exactly because uh, um, if there is a cut of electricity, you cannot continue to do what you are doing. You have to change it then to come back to what you were doing before. So, yes, indeed. And uh, this uh, alarming news yesterday coming from city mayor Klitschko, who announced that we are that they are preparing for the plan plan B. Plan B, it means that there will be more missiles coming from Russian Federation here, uh, more destruction, and the total blackout, they cannot exclude it. So when this news appeared, uh, surely enough, there were a lot of people, I would not say in panic, but this is something you cannot, uh, you can, it's difficult to imagine that 3 million people at least will be obliged to, to evacuate from Kiev. Mm, this is largely discussed in Ukraine. People are trying to imagine how it will go because the total blackout will mean that there will be no uh, no water, no canalization, more important, even most importantly, no heating. So there will be no place for real life in Kiev. But we still hope there will be a place, there is a possibility to avoid this worst scenario. Look, and this is their key strategy. Remember when we were discussing Mariupol, how they attacked Mariupol in late February? They first attacked the electricity stations. So they first cut Mariupol from electricity, and that means also heating and water. So people are in their multi-story buildings. Can you imagine that you can actually do, cannot go to the bathroom to wash your hands? You cannot go to toilet because there is no running water. Uh, no canalization and uh, no electricity, no heating. And if if this is during winter, as in Mariupol, it was in late February. Uh, it's extremely cold, uh, and uh, so the destruction of the city started from from that point. And it is indeed quite probable that Russians are trying to do the same with Kiev. I, I would argue, yes, still, yes, this is a very very strong uh, comparison. But I, I would argue that. Uh, I don't think that they really think to continue to, to make the same scenario here because the difference in Mariupol, let's come back to March uh, 2022, they were, the city was encircled. There were no possibility for Ukrainian troops to help the defenders of Mariupol inside the city. Now we are speaking about Kyiv, which is the capital of the country, and uh, we still have some distance until the border. And the border, as far as we were told, is highly fortified at that very moment. Ukrainian troops are there, so they will... Yeah, but I, I, I did mean that. I, I meant that the Russian style of waging a war is is a style which is unchanged from Syria to Ukraine, from Chechnya through Syria to Ukraine, is targeting the civilian infrastructure. So making people freeze, making people be cut from the supplies, making people go back to the medieval times when you okay you use some uh, lamps on accumulators on batteries but many people are using uh, the old school things like uh, like uh, candles or something like this yeah and um, what else you imagine you're living in a in a big tower like the, there was a there was a fashion in ukraine in recent years to build houses of 25 
floors, 30 floors or something like that. We are living on the ninth floor. Our parents are living in the 13th and 16th floor. And when, for example, Tanya's father came home late in the evening, well, he's already almost 70. He cannot climb the stairs until the 16th floor. And uh, Tana, you just went for him just to pick him up and to bring bring him to, to our place. So this is the reality. The reality, which is, of course, not not tragic as on the front line, as with people who are losing their lives. Uh, but it is, it is well, it, it, it is extremely uncomfortable, let's say. Let's yes, put it exactly. in this way. And I would say that uh, this strategy, what will the, maybe the, the potential of, Ukra- of Ukrainian resistance is once again Ukrainian village. Because imagine in, in, in winter in big cities, we have uh, everywhere the same situation without heating, uh, without uh, running water, without electricity. It will be extremely difficult to survive. But look what happens if you move to a village. In a village, you can have a heating this uh, archaic in a way uh, way of heating with with the wood uh, you can have a generator in any kind of private a house. gasoline generator you mean gasoline generator which generates electricity on uh, of gasoline of gasoline this is a very popular thing it it's noisy it is polluting yes indeed but uh, if you have no choice you can use it in in villages in the countryside so uh, my idea is that uh, in case of uh, huge problems People from urban areas like Kiev or any other big city will be moving to villages. And You've provided that they have yeah, to yeah, move, and not so many people do that. Not so many people do have the places where to move. That's yeah, the problem. But, but I, I mean that this is a, uh, a contrast to what we were living in the 20th century. In 20th century, people were trying to save their lives inside cities. And now we will be, I hope we will not, but the very close perspective for us is to try to, to survive in the countryside. Not well, to... well, it depends. And uh, remember we went to uh, Barashivka and in one of our podcasts, I think we told the story of Barashivka 100 years ago. It was a, a place where some Kiev poets like Mikola Zerov uh, moved in early 20s. So why they moved there? Because... After the Bolshevik invasion of, of Ukraine and the capture of Kiev, very cruel, cruel things that the, the Russian Bolsheviks were doing in Kiev. Uh, and in Kiev, there was a famine in, in 20, 1920, 1921. People were moving to the, to the countryside. So now hopefully we don't have a famine, but still these electricity cuts. Well, when, if there is a total blackout, that means that everything will stop. Right, so now we have this partial blackout, but yeah, things can come, things can come back, and uh, we we do perceive our history in a, in a cyclical way a little bit. Yeah, but at the same time, maybe uh, another important detail is that once again, this dramatic situation with electricity supplies is really dramatic in Kiev and Kiev region. But Ukraine is not only Kiev and Kiev region. In in many Ukrainian cities, situation is almost normal. As, for example, in Odessa, we traveled to Odessa this weekend and we'll be recording another podcast telling the story of Odessa now. We were surprised to see how city lives 
just a normal life with a lot of electricity, with a lot of light, lights everywhere. So it it it's, uh, also depends on a on a exact uh, locations where which were hit by uh, Russian missiles. Yes, another thing that uh, is can be dangerous is that Russians can hit the 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 gas stations, uh, and uh, heating is depending on gas. Ukrainian heating is depending on gas, and uh, this can be another another target for Russian missile strikes. Uh, so maybe we should be preparing for this as well. So this is kind of a you know continuous state run terrorism against the civilian population to make people freeze to make people um, be in famine be be in, in in lack of food in lack of supplies to make people starve as they actually did 100 years ago on several occasions starving ukrainians and other nationalities to death in the 20s in the 30s yeah, so this is it. Coming back to food, one of the important events, and we went to Odessa just to see the Black Sea and uh, to talk to people, of course. Odessa has the, the most important three ports right now which are exporting Ukrainian food. And um, and the, the important thing about it is that after the attack that we discussed in our previous podcast, after the attack on Sevastopol, meaning that Ukrainians are trying to attack, although Ukrainians do not say that this is us who are attacking this, but we can assume. And this is, by the way, the difference with Russians. You remember Putin clearly said that he ordered these massive missile strikes on Ukraine. So he clearly said he is guilty of the war crimes, right? Um, so there was an attack uh, on Sevastopol, on the ships which were based uh, in 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 the in the in the port in the Sevastopol port, the Russian Black Sea port, uh, not in the open sea, not like um, a Moskva warship which was in the open sea, but in the harbor of the Sevastopol, on the key heart of the military base, and Russians were very angry of, about this, and they withdrew from the grain deal. So we explained during our previous podcast that the grain deal is very tricky because it is not a trilateral grain deal. It is a, a deal between Russia, Turkey and UN on the one side and Ukraine, Turkey and the UN on the other side. And Russia withdrew from these agreements and that actually meant that they broke the agreements with Turkey and United Nations. So they wanted to harm Ukraine, but they broke the agreement with Turkey and United Nations. Yes, uh, what was happening indeed, uh, it was extremely interesting because long before, a weeks before they broke officially these uh, disagreements, they were trying to, to, to make the procedure much longer for Ukrainian ships coming in or out Ukrainian ports because they, according to the agreement, they had the right of inspection, what they call inspection of these uh, Ukrainian and international ships coming in or out Ukrainian ports. They were trying to create these artificial lines artificial waiting lines for, for Ukrainian Ukrainian boats. And at that very moment, after the attack on Sebastopol Harbor, which was uh, very spe- spectacular in a way, one, and yes, indeed, they proclaimed they will, they will leave the agreement. But the reaction coming from UN, Turkey and Ukraine was really interesting 
because they said, okay, so if your inspectors, but because what does it mean they leave the agreement? They, it means that they are not uh, delegating people to inspect these international and Ukrainian ships. That's it. And they are leaving. So, and the response coming from United Nations and Turkey and Ukraine was clear. Okay, right. If you don't want to participate in this agreement, just you don't. So that's no problem for us. We'll do it all by ourselves. And that was extremely interesting. At that very moment, Russia's plan was that everybody would be frightened. Everybody would say, oh, oh, please, Russia, come back to, to this deal because this is important for, for us. And it was a kind of a strong response saying, saying, Look, we will do that without you. And what will you do? Will you be able to attack, I don't know, these ships transporting agricultural products? Will you be able to stop or to destroy, to, 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 to destruct the ships? What will you do? And at that very moment, Russia understood that there was no other way for them than, but to get back. And in my opinion, and I think it's, 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 it's widely shared experience here in Ukraine. It's, it was extremely good example how you should deal with Russia. You just say, we are not afraid. We'll continue to do what we are doing, whatever you think. And, and that's it. And then they will, they will consider, they will, uh, weaken their position. And what else can they do? Because the the only other option for them would be that they put the military warship and then there are warships, civilian warships with Ukraine coming uh, and continue to go. And what this military warship, will will it shoot on the civilian ships? Yes. Well, Russians are really, well, it, it, it sounds weird, but they're trying to think about their image and they are... Uh, trying to send the message to the countries that support them. And of course, this information war is, is still not won by Ukraine or the West. Uh, so they're still trying to do that. But of course, if they shoot a sh- civilian ship with Ukraine, well, that that is not a good sol- uh, solution for them. And uh, they understand that they're kind of in, in a deadlock, right? And uh, this also shows that I think that basically... There are so many situations where Russians will be in a deadlock so they can do, say, A or say B or say C and any options will be actually would lead to their losses. I'll add an important detail at the same time. Putin said on the day they they came back to this grain deal, uh, he said that, okay, Russia wants uh, and received um, security guarantees from Ukraine uh, as if Ukraine will never, will no more attack uh, Russian warship, Russian boats in the in the Black Sea. And it was extremely surprising because, uh, first of all, there were no guarantees coming from Ukraine because Ukraine considers uh, Crimea and Crimea ports as being Ukrainian because there, there will be no guarantees for, for Russian fleet there. And on the other hand, it was quite surprising to hear Putin who demands for security guarantees for his military uh, in the in 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 the there and not um, not uh, blackmailing other partners with what with with the aggression it's a kind of a change of situation because they started the war stating that they are extremely strong and they 
And Ukraine was seeking for the security guarantees and still seeking for the security guarantees from partners, from NATO countries, from other countries, for, from, from, uh, from others. And now Russia is talking about security guarantees for this uh, fleet in the Black Sea. So it's a, we, what I'd like to say, so we see that Russian position is, is weakening in time and it's quite clear now. It's interesting that they are uh, scaling down their nuclear rhetoric. We remember that they were talking about the dirty bomb that Ukrainians will, you know, launch in Kherson region, and that led many people to suspect that they are preparing something like this kind of a false flag operation. But they are scaling down these rhetorics, and it, there was an interesting statement by China uh, this week who would say uh, that they would not vel- welcome uh, the the use of the nuclear bomb or even the rhetoric of nuclear bomb. And uh, it also shows, um, it was also an interesting visit of German Chancellor Olaf Scholz uh, to China, well, there is a big discussion where it was successful or was not successful, where Europe should talk to China right now or, or the West. But uh, maybe Russians are losing at a certain point even the Chinese support. We understand that Chinese are rather trying to be neutral. But uh, if, for example, Russians will use the nuclear bomb, it's clear, I think, that not even the West, but also some countries like China or India will criticize it. Well, criticize it, will blame it, will condemn it. Yes, exactly. China is extremely against all, all use of nuclear weapons in any case. And uh, yes, indeed, this China position is is a key position for, for, for the end of this war. Uh, we hoped for many months that China would have some a little bit more pro-Ukrainian position, but it's still neutral. But uh, I think the the key event was this uh, nuclear blackmail. So nuclear, China is not tolerating that. And so it would probably change in, in a long term, in a long perspective, its attitude to what's going on in inside Russia. So let's hope that this uh, blackmail, nuclear blackmail will not come back because there were some periods in the past, during the past months, uh, Russia was not talking about nuclear, but then they were back to this rhetoric. So you cannot guarantee that they will not talk, re-talk about that uh, tomorrow, a day after tomorrow. So everything is, is still possible. Um, and we see that uh, Russian troops are not performing well in the south. They are not performing well in, in the east. So they are accumulating these uh, failures, military failures. And this could provide the ground for them to try to escalate their rhetorics as it happened, uh, unfortunately, many, many, many times in the past months. Right. Let's talk about what is happening on the front line. And as we said in our introduction, the key battle can be for Kherson, although we expected also this battle already in September. And then Ukrainians showed that they are uh, they have some cunning, uh, cunningness, uh, as, um, the, the thinking, uh, thinking very interesting strategic thinking that made everybody believe that they will attack Kherson and they actually attacked Russians in the Kharkiv region in, in the northeast. But Kherson is really a big, big uh, thing because Russians are accumulating troops there and they're preparing both to defend Kherson but also to withdraw from Kherson. So it's like ambiguous 
movements that we we now see they 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 uh, transport uh, lots of equipment military equipment uh, troops from the right bank of the Dnipro river on which Kherson is uh, mostly located to the left bank and uh this is this is interesting because well this is interesting and dramatic because they also uh, organized the so-called evacuation of the civilians. People on the ground say that not so many people actually agreed to evacuate with the Russians. And uh, we can discuss it a little bit later what this so-called evacuation means. But um, but the important thing is that they're also sending, for example, their soldiers that take the civilian clothes and uh, mask themselves in a military people to be on Kherson streets and to to make something some bad things for the Ukrainians, uh, Ukrainian army when it enters the city. They also build the three level defense lines around Kherson. So it it is quite possible that there will be and probably also is already going on a big battle for Kherson as a city, but also Kherson as a region for Nova Kakhovka and for some other places which are south to Kherson. You know what I think about this Kherson uh, battle, which seems to be quite long, in terms of how Russia, Putin and his commanders try, are trying to communicate with Russians inside Russia. Because it happened uh, many times during this, uh, after this full-scale invasion in Kiev region and in the Chernigiv and then in the Zmini island and then in Kharkiv. Very un- uncomfortable for Russian situations when, when, when Russian troops had to withdraw quite quickly without any announcements and it was perceived in a way like a failure. And I guess that it could be also a way now. They are not sure to be able to keep Kherson for long. So they are trying to communicate long before they will be really obliged to leave the city, but in in a way to prepare the population for for this another failure. You know, saying we 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 told you that we the battle will be will be there. We will do whatever we can with Kherson, but we could be obliged to take these difficult decisions, as said by Surovikin, in a way to prepare Russian audience, I mean, Russian citizens for this another failure, uh, for it not to become a surprise like it was in Kharkiv, because in Kharkiv during four, five or six days, uh, sorry, was over. So nobody was prepared to the fact that uh, Russia will withdraw from Kharkiv, uh, from almost entire region. And the same, same happened. It was it took longer. With me, I remember there were a series of uh, Ukrainian attacks, but then the, there were no way, other way for Russians but to leave. And in, for Putin and for, for his uh, uh, power, there is extreme risk coming from inside Russia. Russia in, in Russia, public opinion doesn't tolerate weakness. And this is might be just a way f- to prepare that this is not a weakness. This is the way we are trying to reorganize. And, and in any case, we are heroes and we were uh, doing like in Stalingrad in this Kherson, Kherson uh, this area, I mean, uh, right bank of Kherson, right bank of Dnipro and where Kherson is, it's like uh, uh, it, it's almost encircled now. So in, 
in, apart from Novak Akhovka way. So in a way, they, they could present it like a heroic battle and to cre- in order to create another myth about, about Russian army, about Russian great army and Russian defenders. But what is really happening on the ground is that uh, what people report, people present in Kherson, they report, they're trans- transforming the city in, into a desert. They are really taking away everything meaningful, I mean, anything precious. So it's like they are trying to to transform Kherson in, in a military base once again. And they are evacuating people. We can discuss about that. We just no, no one, not no only one uh, version of why they are doing that. But one idea is that hypothesis is that they are trying to transform Kherson in a fortress without civilians, without uh, hospitals, without schools, without banks, but only military, and to keep as long as they can. Because politically, if Putin loses Kherson, it'll be, it could become a, a beginning of, uh, of very important, uh, serious and dangerous for him political processes inside. So military, they cannot keep it, but politically they cannot lose it. So they're playing for time. And that is the reason that explains why they are doing everything possible to keep the city as long as possible. Let's remind our listeners that Kherson is actually the largest city that Russians have occupied and it is the only oblast center, the center of uh, these administrative units in Ukraine. We have over 20 of them, which we're calling oblasts. So, of course, the loss of Kherson will be dramatic for uh, for for Putin. Uh, but um, let us now briefly discuss some of the narratives of the Russian propaganda. We try to uh, to devote every of our weekly episodes to this topic. And uh, with the help of our colleagues from Vox Ukraine, who are now monitoring Russian narratives abroad, in particular in Central uh, and Eastern Europe, it is very important to, to, to follow it and to understand basically the uh, the, 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 the stage on which Russians are trying to play, for example, in such countries as Hungary. And uh, indeed, uh, narratives which, which seem absolutely absurdist to us and absolutely funny uh, because they're just, just open lies. Well, it seems that in such countries as Hungary, and I, I can assume that it's such in, probably in some countries of Latin America or Africa or Asia, or maybe in Europe as well, or or America, these narratives are working. So, uh, on this evacuation story, my hypothesis is that actually this is this is first first and foremost information information thing. The, the Russians are trying to persuade the world that they are humanistic, that they are caring about civilians, that they are helping the Ukrainian refugees, as they call it. And uh, this was the case with Mariupol when when they were forcing people to leave the city and creating these filtration camps and then sending them all across the Russia, for example. And this is also the case of Kherson. But let's just look what what reality tells us. Mariupol is a city absolutely destroyed by the Russians. We don't know how many people lost their lives there. They were not really caring about the evacuation when they were attacking Mariupol. 
Look, when they came to Kyiv, we we have seen all those filmings when Russians are have been shooting at the Ukrainian civilians, trying to evacuate on their own civilian cars from Bucha, from Irpin, from Hostomel, and they were just shooting them as as if on a safari, uh, sh- just shooting the wild animals, without really thinking about this, without without with no compassion of course with no no emotions just like in a in a safari so they were actually and we know that because we travel ac- across these places we see with our own eyes these shelled shot civilian cars so the next story that we described to you already in one of our previous podcasts is Izum so the number of such big number of victims and on the cemetery that we visited in Izum there is almost half a thousand people and most of them were killed in a, in a shelling by the Russians when the Russians were taking Izum they were not really taking care or caring about civilians they were just heavily shelling the city so this story about Kherson is just a story for for the picture for for the propaganda and um, as we know from our sources not so many people actually agree to uh, civilians inside Kherson agree to participate in this may I add just a slight detail about Kherson the difference only one phrase look for them after this illegal annexation of Kherson Zaporizhia Donetsk and Lugansk, it also means they, they are trying to present this picture for the West, but also for for Russian audience. And look, this Kherson is Russian, so we are taking care of Russians. They are no so contrary to Izum, or they were attacking Izum, or they were attacking Mariupol. It was not Russian, considered as Russian, it was considered by them as Ukrainian. So now they are playing this propaganda Place say stating that we are defending, we are defending, which is completely false and completely complete lie. Exactly, because they are saying actually we are defending our citizens, Russian citizens in Kherson. And the next narrative is also widely spread: is that Ukraine is a terrorist state, right? This is kind of a mirror reflection of the actual reality. Russia is really a terrorist state, but they are trying to reverse this image. And uh, they are saying, but look, Ukraine targeted the Crimea breach. We still don't know who uh, actually organized the explosion of the Crimea breach. But if this is just to make this terminological distinction very, very important. We are in a stage of war. There are supplies of the military equipment to the the stage of the conflict. And Crimea breach is one of these... uh, actually logistical routes Uh, and during the war it is allowed to target the logistic routes of your enemy so it is not a terrorist act if we assume that it is ukrainians who did that it is not a terrorist act against civilians it's just a part of the war to target the logistic supply chains of your enemy what russians are doing they are actually targeting the civilian infrastructure. They are not targeting, they are not trying to, you know, annihilate Ukrainian electricity to cut supplies of the Western weapons to Ukraine. They target the Ukrainian electricity networks to make civilians freeze, uh, starve, uh, and be, be, uh, be unhealthy, be in cold, 
uh, and that's it. So who is the terrorist? The terrorist is somebody who is targeting the civilian objects, civilian targets, not the military ones. Yes, exactly. And if you look at the, these Iranian drones, this uh, why it is extremely difficult to shut them down for Ukraine for Ukrainians is that these objects, these Iranian drones, are even not perceived like military weapon by um, by, uh, by 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 the military system, by defense systems here in Ukraine, and it's purely these terroristic weapons in a way. Good news. Let's let's finish with the good news. Good news is that uh, to published today that according to Ukrainian. Um, Ukrainian intelligence Russians have uh, are out are almost out of their Iskander uh, missiles high precision missile they were sending here for many months already and this is good news and bad news is they are still in talks and maybe already in supplies with Iran about these ballistic missiles which would probably arrive from Iran to Russia and they'll likely to restart their missile terror against Ukraine so Ukraine really needs anti-air these um, air defense systems in order to protect civilians, in order to protect civilian infrastructure, in order to save lives, and also in order to avoid these millions of people coming to Europe. If you don't want have millions of migrants in winter somewhere in in, in European Union, you should help Ukraine with with um, defense systems. Yeah, and let's not forget that ballistic missiles are very difficult actually to down. They go very deep, very high in the space, and they they fall on you from huge speed vertically. So obviously this is a worrying news about the Iranian Iranian missiles, but uh, let's hope Ukraine will, with the help of the partners, Ukraine will be able to cope with this. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org. My name is Vladimir Yermolenko. I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and journalist. My co-host is Tetyana Harkova, who is a Ukrainian scholar and journalist and the head of the International Department of Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. Let me remind you that you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Ukraine World. We spend the majority of your donations to help people affected by this war and to help Ukrainian defenders, patreon.com slash Ukraine World. Uh, follow us on social networks. We are very active on Twitter, Twitter Ukraine World, also on Facebook, ukraineworld.org. Uh, we are also very active, try to be very active on YouTube so you can you can uh, listen and, and watch our videos. And very shortly we will be also active on such networks as Reddit and Quora. So follow us, follow the Ukraine world, stay with us and stand with Ukraine.